difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. Keith Phipps. Last week, we discussed 1998's Velvet Goldmine, Todd Haynes' fictionalized shadow history of the glam rock movement. This week, we're bringing in Rolling Thunder Review, Martin Scorsese's unusual new Netflix docufiction about Bob Dylan's traveling musical roadshow through small venues across America in the mid-1970s. Rolling Thunder Review is Scorsese's second documentary about Bob Dylan, following No Direction Home in 2010. Though No Direction Home is nearly three and a half hours, Scorsese focused only on Dylan's career leading up to the moment he went electric, disappointing some of the fans and critics who loved him for his protest music and hailed him the voice of a generation. For Scorsese, it was a significant moment, Dylan the artist insisting on blazing his own trail despite the demands of a fan base and an industry that might have wanted him to continue to walk the line. That's been Scorsese's struggle for 50 years too, trying to make personal films in a commercial art form that always puts up a resistance. Dylan's slippery identity is again the focus of Rolling Thunder Review, which finds Scorsese and Dylan in a more playful spirit. With access to a treasure trove of footage from Dylan's old-fashioned traveling roadshow across America in 1975 and 76, Scorsese offers plenty of riveting performances from Dylan and friends like Joan Baez and Joni Mitchell. But in true Trickster Bob fashion, he also throws in stories and talking heads that are completely made up, including appearances by Tanner 88 star Michael Murphy, Sharon Stone, and Bette Midler's husband, Martin Van Hasselberg, as fictional filmmaker Stefan Van Dorp. The film doesn't bother to hint at what is and isn't true, it just prints the legend. We'll be back to talk about it after the break. Summer 1975, rumor came around that the inspired Dylan was back, gathering all of his forces. I want to tell you something. <laughs> the idea was to put a tour up. We should be playing 20,000 seats. But instead, he wanted all these small venues. We really run a short of time. Want to introduce Boy, sure hope we get to Boston on time. Where have you been? The tour was a catastrophe. Where have you been? It wasn't a success. Not if you measure success in terms of profit. The nation was so divided. So they embarked on a journey through America. Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, and Jack Elliott, right in the Civic Center. You know me, I'm too old for that kind of stuff. Oh. Rolling Thunder Review, uh, what do you think of, I guess, this fairly controversial enterprise? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly conceptually bold. Yeah, and I, I like that about it. I, I don't know that that all the gags land the way they ought to in some ways, but I appreciate that it's kind of keeping with the spirit of the original enterprise, which is like, let's just be a little reckless and see what happens. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed this as, as well. I mean, the concert footage especially is riveting. I mean, I, in, in some ways, you know, I almost feel like it's faint praise, but I, I do feel like it's the original footage he's drawing from, which was shot for the film Ronaldo and Clara. Uh, that is the standout here. But I mean, um, there's just one highlight after another when it comes to that. Yeah. What do you think, Genevieve? Yeah, it, w- it works a lot 
better for me as a concert film than, you know, some, you know, maybe grander statement on either Dylan or the myth around him or just the mythology of uh, musicians more more generally. But like he said, the concert footage is is really incredible and gave me a a greater appreciation for an artist who I admit has often left me fairly cold. And I know that that's like not a cool thing to say, but you know, I'm, I'm saying You're it. Saying I've that. said it before. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's out there on the internet in print. I'm you know, I I can't put that genie back in the bottle. So I'm not I'm not a huge Dylan fan, you know. But I I certainly understand you know what he has meant to the culture and respect the way that he has maintained his image and i say that in meaning like evolved his image you know over over the years but this was the the first time in maybe not the first time but this was one of the rare times when i found myself really connecting to bob dylan musical performances the rest of the film uh the sort of like documentary like uh moments of it i what i was saying in the the last episode about you know it being a little distracting trying to reconcile what is fact and fiction as you're as you're watching it i found that process a lot more frustrating here because i don't know that it was handled that elegantly especially especially with the jack tanner stuff and the you know teenage sharon stone and uh you know the the conceit got a little too enamored of itself in those moments. And I, it took me out of the film and made me even kind of angry a little bit, (laughs) but, uh, but, you know, it was always followed within a few minutes by some more of this great concert footage. So it wasn't a bad viewing experience for me, but it was an occasionally frustrating one. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I I mean, I, I'm completely on board with both of you in that the actual performance footage here is the star. I mean, like is uh, right starting with that that version of Isis is just ridiculous, ridiculous mm-hmm. how good it is, and it's well shot. I mean, this footage is is not just like crappy like behind the scenes footage. This is like really good concert film footage, like really thoughtfully executed and so all that's really good and and i and i watching it i've seen it a couple of times now because i I watched it before it came on to netflix because i wrote this big thing about scorsese's documentaries for the ringer and so there'd been too much of a distance between when i saw it so i saw it again uh today in fact and i kind of i both did and didn't appreciate the fictional aspect of it more in a way like you know because i was able to identify this time just what was obviously fictional or um uh, whereas i was just i didn't expect that when i when i saw it the first time i was able to kind of appreciate it but also see that it puts kind of a distance between myself and this material i didn't want a distance from you know this moment in um musical history that is that's so exciting um and so to, to have that kind of mythologized in a way that was that's almost kind of glib wasn't so great uh but at the same time I laugh like hell at a lot of this stuff. I mean, all this, all this stuff with Stefan Van Dorf. I mean, that, yeah. it's fun, and, it's, and what's really He's a fun good character. What's really fun for me is how much Dylan himself is enjoying him. Like you never see Dylan enjoy being, you know, talking to the camera. I mean, that's not really his thing. But like, he really seems like he is one hundred percent on board with this nonsense, and it's and it makes sense that he would be. I mean, this is his chance to just give himself over completely. 
to fiction to uh, rewrite the mythology around this tour in his career, and he 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 loves it. He has a, he has a good time with it. So yeah, I mean, it's also he's he's well served by it because you do get this you know people talking about how amazing it was and this footage that speaks for itself. While also he gets to puncture it a little bit in in ways that kind of make fun of those that would make too big a deal about it, uh, which is kind of uh, you know it can't be a comfortable position to be in if you're Bob Dylan to just have your every gesture uh, analyzed for, for meaning as being like completely right. Brilliant. But, but I mean, yeah, but then, then you get testimony that is, that is pretty honest. I mean, you know, you get like Joan, Joan Baez, everything Joan Baez says is pretty, is pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. And that, that is a relationship that that's so fascinating and fraught. And uh, it's interesting to hear her perspective on joining that, tour because because he he had not treated her particularly well at certain you know what he didn't need her anymore or when mm-hmm. he was moving past uh that phase in his his career that she was discarded rather coldly and when she talks about going on this tour and her expectations for what that would be like and how she managed it and was able to get something out of it that was great and then you see her on stage performing and that's that's fun too she looks like she's having a having a great time so uh, all that stuff was good. The the short bit that Joni Mitchell was in it was probably my favorite part of the film because I love Joni Mitchell. So incredible. just watching that performance was a highlight. Yeah, that scene's incredible too. And it's also, it's, it really shows how remarkable she is because you have, it's her and Dylan and Roger McGuinn and just the weight of those leg of so many legends playing at once all to, all to pull your attention in, in several directions, but it's all about her. It's all about this song mm-hmm. that's kind of, you know, a new song that she's uh, Coyotes, Coyote. you know, all time classic. But it's uh, then it's just a, a a new piece that she's still kind of working out, and and it's it's amazing. Yeah, I mean I, that was a pretty worked out version. Of yeah, Coyote. that's true. That's true. But, it, but it is interesting to see to see someone like Dylan just being there in, in support of that song, and also just the content, just like the lyrical content of that song mm-hmm. itself, and how it mm-hmm. reflects upon how she's in this rock world and on this tour that is just that is full of men who often have you know sort of predatory intent, and you know I mean that's that's kind of a, gets gets to the heart of what what Coyote is is all about, and uh, you know also just the idea of of traveling and you know the freeway and i mean it all comes comes through so well and it's 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 so weird i mean now that coyote is i think a song that people know pretty well now from Joni mitchell but but as the film emphasizes that at the time it was new and and she was insisting on on playing new material that that was uh, much different from what she was doing from what people loved her for from the court and spark and blue and those types of types of records so yeah that was kind of my favorite part too in fact i think i wrote down when in the movie that, that appears because i've watched that specific scene probably like five times mm-hmm. um but that's great and i mean as far as the performance so i mean isis like i said is great knocking on heaven heaven's door is a really good number uh, what was the one i kept singing i for some reason i was singing it all day and now i can't remember it the second hurricane track. oh no that's no. that's really good too but i was kind of i had hurricane stuck in my head when this was over <laughs> yeah it's it's really good i i don't hard rain i mean that the version of uh um, hard rain on this is just awesome i mean it, it's a real highlight of dylan's career the recordings i've heard from from this tour and the film obviously but i mean he has a habit now and then of reworking his old songs sometimes rendering them kind of unrecognizable but this is a really smart rethinking of his early material 
and material from from uh, Blood on the Tracks and Desire, which similar to to, to Joni Mitchell's material had had not come out yet. But I mean, Isis was not a song that people going to see this tour would know. But you know, it, it kind of has an undeniable power, even if you don't know it. D- definitely, and I think that's borne out by the fact that is the first song that you hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really has to have that kind of impact and you know there's a lot of significance uh, references and things that that scorsese is is making that that give the film a certain richness i mean you, you, i mean he, he opens with a bit with uh george Millie mm-hmm. short which is in george george Millie being one of the founding f- filmmakers one who's associated with with magic and with fantasy and trickery so that so you kind of it kind of sets up the movie that way and uh, central to his film uh hugo as well yeah, that's right. Of course, that's right. I've, God, why did I forget about that? <laughs> yes, of course, it is. It is, it is a part of, of Hugo, so that's important, and it kind of primes viewers to kind of get ready for something unexpected and, and kind of uh, illusory. So much of what's impressive about this film lies in its original footage. So there's something perverse about uh, manipulating that original footage and and archival material in in service of what's a little bit of a troll, a little bit of a filmmaking troll, you know? How how extensive is that? Because I know the the Sharon Stone photos were were, um, altered. The Kiss sweatshirt was definitely Mm -hmm. that, what she was wearing. I, I can't say how, you know, much manipulation there is of footage and photographs, but there is manipulation happening from Dylan himself, just in terms of sort of setting up these things, you know, and engage and engaging with the, those falsehoods in a way that corroborates the the fictionalized elements of this. Yeah, I mean, I think that that one of the things that's so fascinating about the movie is that it it really doesn't demarcate what is f- mm-hmm. true and false. Like, it, like you could watch this film knowing very little about the tour and Dylan, just a casual viewer and just accept everything that happens in the movie is true. Right. I mean, they, they, there's nothing, there's no indication that one part of it is and isn't. I mean, obviously, you know, you see a bunch of people performing, you know, a show in the mid seventies. Like the, I think you can pretty much trust what you're seeing there, but you know, you're used to watching a documentary. You think that everything these talking heads are saying is true. And even if you, you know, I mean, for me, I don't know if I really, when I saw it the first time, I just, I didn't really sit up on my chair until Jack Tanner comes on. And that's pretty late. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a whole lot of nonsense before that, that I should, that I just kind of accepted blindly. It's like, well, it seems kind of weird that Sharon Stone was is in this movie and, but okay. And, and, uh, and then it was like, oh, Okay. <laughs> A lot of this is complete nonsense. The one that I think is especially sneaky is uh, the stuff with Jim Giannopoulos, because unlike Van Dorp, this fictionalized character, Jim Giannopoulos is a is a real person. He's the CEO of Paramount Pictures, and he's presented here as sort of the you know financial mastermind or whatever of of the tour, but he had nothing to do with with, uh. with Rolling Thunder review, you know, so like. His portions of the movie feel like sort of the the parts you highlight in a book, you know, like you if you if you want to know what this movie is really getting at, you know, like yeah. the Giannopolis part and honestly, the Van Dorp stuff, too. You know, a lot of it comes out in those moments, you know, of characters that in Van Dorp's case are not real. But in Giannopolis's case, you know, are a real person. They're just filling a role they didn't actually inhabit in, in history. I mean, what, and what he, what he's saying, it seems completely true that that an act of Bob Dylan's stature, this massive amount of support 
uh, this crew, this the, these musicians, you know, traveling to venues that are too small for them, uh, you know, getting pretty shaky cuts of the door, you know, being this massive money losing venture, all of that seems pretty much like what might have happened or probably happened. Yeah, I just think the absurdity of there is, is that someone would really think they could turn a profit on this in the first place or or have a make, have it be a big money maker in the first place and the, him treating it as if it were some sort of uh, uh, something of a surprise that this did not go as well as it could have uh, is uh, uh, a pretty funny joke. Yeah, and I just I mean I think that there's a sense here that Scorsese is doing Bob Dylan a service. I mean, I, you know, th- th- there's just such a that instinct of of Dylan's to push everything away, push away every bit of you know mythology and even even truth about about him, and and keep all of that stuff at arm's length, and just kind of create and create around him and create fictions and create other things. Like, and Scorsese is his almost like a accomplice in this uh, rather than a, a director he's a he's an accomplice of this sneaky little crime that that dylan is, is committing to the truth yeah for sure it's it's interesting to think about you know scorsese's involvement as you know director and the the filmmaking that he does here because as we've said so much of this footage already existed and you know the talking head interviews are pretty standard setups and he's not necessarily coaxing performances out of people in the traditional sense but also he is doing all of that you know it's much more of sort of a directing as masterminding i think than we than we tend to think about directors in you know more traditional narrative films or or even you know concert documentaries where the footage is is original you know so I don't want to say like this feels like a lark for Scorsese because like I think there is some very purposeful stuff happening here, but I don't know. It seems like you said it seems like they're they're both kind of having fun with with something that's outside of maybe expectations for both of them. I think I think that it's totally fair to call this movie a lark, really. Um, okay, I mean, good. Because I think because I, <laughs> I mean, just didn't th- want to offend you. Scott. No, of course, uh, Scorsese <laughs> super fan number one. But like the thing uh, thing is is like Martin Scorsese is is busy like burning through every pile of cash in sight for right. to make the the Irishman also for Netflix. And and th- there's been a question. To me, and this is something I explore a little bit in the Ringer piece of Scorsese's level of engagement, both on a practical level and also just on a personal level. Um, you know, and what I ended up concluding was that is that these all these documentaries that he's made do tell a story about who he is and what what he cares about. And, and you know, and these films are personal in their way. But if you look at a film like you know George Harrison living in the material world, you're not saying you're not you're not thinking about it the same way as you think about Goodfellas, <laughs> you know, and you're not going to think about this film as the yeah. same way you probably think about the Irishman when it comes out. You know, I think, I think there is this kind of, there's a playful spirit to this movie and a, and a lightness to it that, you know, maybe, maybe isn't appropriate or maybe is annoying and, and not successful, but, but I think Lark is a, a pretty decent word for it. I know one thing I want to talk about before we're, uh, before we wrap up is which Allen Ginsberg hairstyle <laughs> is your favorite <laughs> is it the full beard and the big bushy hair uh bushy hair and mustache or the kind of like the the fairly straight uh st- you know sort of a straight businessman look he adopts at one point I, I don't care what his hair looks like as long as he's dancing yeah, yeah. <laughs> dancing fool alan ginsburg uh, it, and many people have made this observation but uh uh, Todd Haynes casting of David Cross <laughs> as Helen Ginsburg <laughs> is uh, it's almost overwritten. When it's you too see. much. It's so perfect. <laughs> it's way too. It's too perfect. He was born to play that role. 
So we'll uh, be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Rolling Thunder Review and Velvet Goldmine. Any idea why you would wear a mask? <laughs> you being funny? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was kind of a leading question. Yeah, okay. We'll get to I the point. <laughs> we didn't have enough masks on that tour. We should have had masks for everybody. When somebody's wearing a mask, uh, he's going to tell you the truth. Uh, when he's not wearing a mask, it's highly unlikely. Well, now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together, talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, and I think the first part <laughs> is fact and, and fiction. I mean, th- these are two films that are using fiction to tell us something true, <laughs> I guess. And uh, maybe the opposite or not. Are they using fact to tell something fictional? No, they're just using, <laughs> using fiction to tell us to give us a different perspective of what is new, and they're and they're conceptualized in a, a pretty radical way. So. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that of the two, I feel like Velvet Goldmine is a lot more committed to and successful at doing that. With uh, with Rolling Thunder, I think we kind of touched on the ways in which um, puncturing the myth and like having some fun with it and, and turning it into a lark is true to what Rolling Thunder the tour was all about but I think there's it's a lot more complex and I think a lot more uh, rewarding those games between fact and fiction and and Velvet Goldmine uh, I don't think you know as, as we kind of touched on in the last episode I, n- I don't think a factual version of that story uh, tells the truth quite as well I think the the merging of fact and fiction also allows both films to engage either on a a subtextual level or occasionally on a textual level with the idea of memory. And like, I'm thinking of the, at the very beginning of rolling thunder where Dylan says like, he doesn't remember anything about it, you Mm -hmm. know? Uh, And then proceeds to participate in a two and a half hour movie (laughs) about it, you you know? And, and similarly uh, velvet Goldmine is, you know, dealing with, you know, memories and recollections of an air of a, era that has since passed and that, you know, the people who are participating in that era were doing it in such a way, you know, setting aside all the intoxicants uh, involved, but but we're also doing it in a way that was very wrapped up in artificiality and not, you know, quote unquote, true to the experience of of what uh, everyone was experiencing at, at that time. So the the recollections we get of it are are very specific and and filtered and and perhaps skewed. So I think by you know eschewing factual historical accuracy, both of these films engage with that element of of memory of you know when you're looking back, every person is going to look back and see something different. And these films are just kind of getting at that idea through their structure, I guess. To talk about Rolling Thunder Review, I mean, this this happened, what, 40 years ago, or over 40 years ago. And, uh, and so, of course, memory is going to be an issue. But I think the other thing it implies, too, is that even if people remember everything perfectly, like, what's really important here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, right. like, And that's the same, same thing with Velvet Goldmine. What's important is the essence of the thing not the actual TikTok of what actually happened. Um, right. That's not important. What's important is, is the music and the scene and the kind of the, the feeling of it. And in Rolling Thunder Review, it almost becomes satirical in a way, a satirical, a satire of the type of behind-the-scenes documentaries that really aren't going to tell you much about, you know, that are going to give you all these stories, but those stories don't really tell you anything that that important or, or dimensional about the bands and the acts that they're covering. So um, so it makes sense. And I think with both films, it's it's about 
trying to think about what the essence of of the artist is and finding a form to match it. I mean, and, and you know, we talked about a lot about that with Velvet Goldmine, which which Haynes Haynes does it so brilliantly. But but of course, this you know, Rolling Thunder Review is is so much a Bob Dylan type of movie in fact it's called like the the actual title of it is like rolling thunder review a bob dylan story by barton scorsese and so mm-hmm. that brings it even more you know into the land of neo mythology and fiction and in in a way from something that we're supposed to take as documentary truth we should also before the emails start arriving um acknowledge that it is a something of a rescue effort of the movie ronaldo and clara yeah. which was Dylan's the Dylan directed film where the footage come from comes from but which itself was a fictionalization of that tour uh, Dylan played a character named Ronalda, his wife, who I don't think there's any footage of, of Sarah Dylan in, in this movie at all, uh, played Clara, Ronnie Hawkins and Ronnie Blakely played Bob, Bob Dylan, quote unquote, and Mrs. <laughs> Mrs. Dylan. I haven't, I own a bootleg of it and really? I've, I've never actually gotten around to watch it because it, it, there, you know, the reputation is not four hours. Great. Too, right? it, it is 232 minutes long. Uh, <laughs> so it is a commitment, but it was, uh, that two disc set is, uh, sitting around in my office somewhere to watch. Uh, someday. That's really hard to find, though, Keith. That's a, it's know. not that hard to find on eBay. <laughs> oh, really? Is that where you found it? Uh, I, I, and who knows? It may be even terrible. I, try, terrible I tried. Quality, I but. really did try for the Scorsese piece to, to track that movie down, and I could not do it. Just call your friend Keith. He's got it. He's got everything. What a collection. Just before we move on from this topic, I Scott, you briefly noted the full title of Rolling Thunder Review, and I just want to quickly note that there's actually a third title that it's given with those opening uh, uh, opening title card, which is Conjuring the Rolling Thunder mm. Review, a Bob Dylan story by Martin Scorsese. So the, <laughs> the addition of, of that verb, Conjuring, you know, that uh, underlines even more sort of the, you know, mythical elements at play here. Yeah. I mean, is, is there going to be a point where Netflix is just going to put a title card in the front saying the film you're about to see is a big pile of nonsense <laughs> uh, uh, or mostly a pile of nonsense? Uh, because yeah, that that uh, that conjuring definitely um, also signals what you're about to see. So the one of the other themes that these are these, by the way, many of these connections are, are were made by our listener Enrico, who had suggested these this pairing. So I'm I'm gonna tick tick them off one by one. One of the connections is about musical alter egos and disposable identities, which is certainly a part of both of these movies. You know, they're both, Bowie and Dylan are both artists that reinvent themselves on a, on a regular basis. Uh, with Bowie, it, it, the artifice was you know, almost, you know, he would debut a new persona and, and, and trot them out, and it would be almost part of a, a plan he was executing in some ways, although obviously it was also an artistic expression. With, with Dylan, it just, it almost seems like just sort of wherever his head went next in some ways. I mean, you know, there was a, sort of the conscious split with with protest music and going electric. I mean, these, these are big, bold lines in the sand that he's drawing as well. So in some ways, they're not that similar artists, but I think in this in this sense, they, they have a lot in common. Yeah, I found it interesting on a more, I guess, super appropriately superficial level, you know, how both films engage to you know, a fairly light extent, but uh, enough that it stuck out to me with, uh, you know, the use of, of makeup and masks mm-hmm. and costuming, you know, as as part of crafting and uh, creating an identity and a, a persona for yourself, like the white face paint that the Dylan wears throughout Rolling Thunder Review, uh, you know, we're given a couple of semi-plausible explanations for it. And, 
which of those, if either, is accurate. I, it it doesn't really matter because the the makeup, the the flowered hat, whatever, like that is the persona. It doesn't necessarily matter what it means. The same way that you know the glitter makeup and the platform boots, it doesn't really matter what they mean. It's it's more the impact they have as part of this superficial persona creation, whatever you want to call it, and what deeper emotional connection viewers, audiences draw from that. There's a line common to both films too, which is give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth, which mm-hmm. comes from which comes from Oscar Wilde. And 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 uh, I saw a lot of reviews of Rolling Thunder quoting it as uh, quoting it as if, if it were a Dylan original creation, uh, <laughs> which it was it was kind of fun to see that pop up in uh, Velvet Gold. Yeah, what a connection there yeah, too. My gosh. Um, one thing I would say too I, about the face paint was that again one of the, the funny things about Rolling Thunder Review is that Bob Dylan embraces the the, the, the nonsense involving Sharon Stone and Kiss and then and mm-hmm. see, and going and having her take him to see Kiss and then and, and see them in their makeup and think, thinking hmm that's interesting when that had not that really definitely was not the inspiration no. I think the inspiration <laughs> was more Children of Paradise right mm-hmm. um, the, the 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 great uh, French classic, but the fact that Dylan is just completely willing to give over to this, st- this stupid story uh, about seeing Kiss and hanging out with Kiss and you know and Sharon Stone and that sort of thing, I mean that kind of tells you something about how much he cares about people knowing the truth of this whole get up same thing with the the title of rolling thunder review like you know the multitude of explanations were given for what that means sort of the deliberate nose thumbing at the idea that an explanation is even necessary as in velvet goldmine there's an engagement with the idea that like the act of creation is not necessarily about what it means to the artist it's about what the audience gets from it you know and we see that also play out in the character of arthur and velvet goldmine another theme that connects these movies is, is art and commerce because i mean both of these these are about commercial artists these are about art, people who are playing to fans who have fans and and have to navigate their careers in relationship to what people expect of them what the industry expects of them what critics expect from them what fans expect from them and there's a lot of pushback and a lot of tension in that relationship that is reflected in both films and i think it's there's a moment in, in rolling thunder review where they point out that dylan had just performed to huge audiences with the band for his, his comeback tour and I, you know, it's not, he, at no point does he say that wasn't a satisfying experience, but you could definitely see that something is pushing him in the entirely other direction with this tour as well. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and, and it also goes back to the Scors- Scorsese's No Direction Home. I mean, that is mm-hmm. the theme of No Direction Home is Dylan reaching this point where he is supposed to be part of this protest movement he's supposed to be the voice of a generation he's supposed to be the guy who is playing these acoustic numbers that are going to kind of fuel the counterculture and he's just not that guy and doesn't want to be that guy and that's just one aspect of his persona that he wants to shed and wants to move on to another phase of his career and and um you know if that's going to be alienating for people 
t- tough shit. <laughs> right. Um, that's just the way it's going to go. As far as Velvet Goldmine goes, I think this is a probably a good opportunity to talk about the two managers, uh, Michael Feast's Cecil giving way to Eddie Izzard's Jerry Devine. It's sort of a trope, I guess, in, in fame narratives of casting aside, you know, the person who first believed in you in order to ascend to that next realm of success. But the Eddie Izzard character is presented as more in tune with the commercial potential mm-hmm. of this scene than than Cecil is, who seems attracted to Slade on a much more emotional and potentially physical level. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic in that it tells us something about Brian Slade as a as a person, as as an artist, and, and somebody who really does have the ambition to be a superstar and is willing to give himself over to a manager who is a little shadier and more aggressive than the one he had previously, the one that he could perhaps trust a little bit more. You know, at the same time, though, he reaches a point with Izzard's character where, and, and with his persona, Maxwell Demon, when it's just time for it to end, he's tired of right. it and it's time to move on, and he does something radical to to make that happen, which is to stage this assassination. Yeah, and that's that's another sort of unflattering detail from from Bowie, where he did hook up with uh, some management that that uh, brought him quite a bit of financial uh, struggles for for a few years there in the seventies as well. I mean, another parallel is, as you said, uh, sort of shedding that Dylan and Bowie or, or Dylan and Slade or, or however we want to do it is shedding artistic persona out of frustration. And even if there were the commercial consequences, at least short term uh, for them, I mean, Bowie obviously doesn't disappear, doesn't doesn't stage his own death and doesn't disappear. But, you know, his next step is uh, kind of reinventing himself as, 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 a, as a soul singer. And, and uh, that's not what he one was expecting but it, it you know it, it worked it worked out as did the phase after that and the phase after that but it takes such a tremendous amount of courage and iconoclasm and in that in the, in the you're not reacting to trends you're setting them <laughs> you're willing to kind of throw yourself into more uncertainty than most people would you know most people are just trying to do the popular thing and and, and trying to figure out what it is that people want and, and cater to that and that's not really what people like bowie and, and dylan have done one other thing I wanted to, to at least close on here with connections is the 1970s because the because both of these movies actually take place pretty close to the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, the sort of I mean, Velvet Goldmine's early 70s, uh, Rolling Thunder Review is mid 70s, but I think they're both in both cases you're dealing with cultures that are kind of sorting through what the 60s were about and what's going right. to come next. Um, and not always, um, you know, f- f- sometimes finding more questions than answers. I think it's significant, that, too, that the, the Scorsese film opens with all the bicentennial celebra- oh, yeah. celebrations, too, and, and, and which is, you know, obviously all about patriotism and and you know america and what it what it what it stands for at that particular point well watergate's playing out in the background too <laughs> yeah 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 exactly and so so um, um but so much skepticism about it too i mean i mean it seems like rolling thunder review was wrapped up in a lot of sort of uh reaction to an idealized version of America and its history, you know, the performance on Indian reservation comes immediately to mind, you know, but I can't remember who says it. I think it's just like uh, some news footage or something of someone saying like, I don't care about the bicentennial, (laughs) you know, there's definitely a sort of cynicism around the idea of, you know, celebrating American history in this very 
rah-rah patriotic way. And Rolling Thunder Review seems, at least to some extent, to be interested in uh, dismantling some of the American mythology that uh, that sprung up during this anniversary. And maybe on Dylan's part, too, it was about rediscovering the country too in this tour by performing in, in smaller cities and venues and and, maybe, and mahjong parlors and mahjong parlors <laughs> and, push, and pushing a protest song um as well which the, the yeah. you know, hurricane is is huge i mean he'd done a song called george jackson a couple years earlier which was another uh protest song but it was something you know he was sort of inching its way back into making political statements in some ways yeah and i and i think it was like could be on his terms. It wasn't like right. a thing where he, it, it was all, all very organic for him to do all this stuff. I mean, you, you really get a great sense of Dylan at this time, or just J- Dylan in general as being someone driven by impulse of uh, and spontaneity and, and um, you know, a willingness to explore and, and, and create on the fly. Um, and, and what better way to do it than, than this long, wild roadshow that isn't conventionally planned at all where they're just literally hitting the road in 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 trailers and and going from town to town and for him getting a sense of where america is at at that point in time yeah i mean i think that's something that for as different as these films are one being a documentary one be being a very consciously artificial recreation uh it is sort of a snapshot of of where different countries are at different points in in their history and i think if we had another hour we could talk about how uh, both films play with how the times shape art and 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 uh, vice versa but i think we'll probably need to wrap things up right scott mm-hmm. i think we probably should but the story this is this isn't rolling thunder review we don't have two and a half hours to uh <laughs> we had to, to cut, draw this out we had to cut gunsberg just to, just to, as, as it was <laughs> oh yeah well, we talked a little about his dancing. Yeah, and, this, and you know, the the story doesn't end. I mean, that's the nice thing about uh, both of these movies that it, you know, if you want to, you can they can take as much investment as you want to to put into them because they're so loaded with references and little Easter eggs and things that things for for fans of these artists. Uh, Velvet Goldmine is available on DVD and Blu-ray and online via the usual digital rental sites. Rolling Thunder Review is on Netflix. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith, what what in the film world has been good for you lately? I think interesting is the optimal word here because I'm, the film I'm going to recommend is not what I would call successful, but I think <laughs> if, you, if you found Rolling Thunder Review's play of fact and fiction and um, use of the Dylan mythology um, intriguing, you should maybe check out the 2003 film Mask and Anonymous, which is a fascinating, bizarre film co-written by Bob Dylan and, and Larry Charles, who wrote for Seinfeld and then who directed things like Borat and, and Bruno and so forth. And it stars Dylan as a legendary rock star who's let out of prison to do a benefit concert in certain sort of dystopian future version of the United States. It doesn't really make a lot of sense 
Uh, it's kind of hypnotic anyway. And I'm going to read you a handful of cast members that are in this. Uh, Jeff Bridges, John Goodman, Penelope Cruz, Luke Wilson, Angela Bassett. Um, <laughs> further down, you're going to find your Val Kilmers and Christian Slaters and Mickey Rourke's. I mean, I guess, you know, Dylan says, do you want to be in my movie? You usually, usually show up. Um, yeah. You know, it is a meandering, not particularly funny comedy, but it is... Like I said, it's fascinating, and uh, never more. <laughs> one of the most fascinating details is a lot of it's like sort of this decayed, sort of like um, rundown neighborhoods, like very like kind of almost overgrown. Like the production design feels, it feels like it's very production designed vision of the dystopian future that maybe like could have been shot possibly in Central America or something. And there's a final card that reveals it was all shot in Los Angeles. Uh, so it's just parts of Los Angeles you just don't see on film. But uh, I don't know. I, I think people uh, interested in, in, in curiosities would uh, would do well to check it out. Uh, yeah, see, I've always kind of like that <laughs> steered clear of it just because its reputation is so toxic in some corners. But 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 the talent involved and kind of the, the, the strangeness of it Makes me think that I've I've made an error in doing. And I mean, uh, again, it. I'm not going all in and recommending this film, but I don't I don't think you're going to forget it once you've seen it. Scott, how about you? Uh, well, I mean, I guess now that it, that we're on the um, topic of Scorsese documentaries, I should probably um, recommend something from this uh, adventure that I had watching all of his nonfiction films, uh, many of which are quite long, by incidentally. <laughs> Uh, so, so, um, you know, credit me for that, for, for just the amount of time, the sheer amount of time it was spent to get, get through some of these <laughs> movies like Voyage to Italy and, and, uh, you know, his personal journey through American film. I mean, they're all, all very good, but boy, howdy, they're long. Um, but I kind of wanted to, I wanted to recommend something that you could find quite easily on Netflix. And that is, uh, George Harrison living in the material world. And, you know, if you're looking for something that is, uh, Scorsese is a super active presence in the film, you're not going to find it. This is not, this is a documentary that you could watch from start to finish and not really think of Scorsese at all and be surprised even that he's in the credits. It's not, so he's not active in the way that you expect him to be or that you, that you're accustomed to him to be uh, in his fiction films. But it's a very interesting movie about, you know, giving you a history of the Beatles from the Harrison's perspective, from the perspective of, of someone who is, you know, the third person anybody would really think about in the band, somebody who wrote all of these songs, uh, some, some of which made the album, some of which that were hits, things like, you know, something and here comes the sun and while my guitar gently weeps, uh, but was not on, you know, but maybe he'd sneak one or two songs on an album, not, but uh, the rest he'd just keep in the vault. But what's interesting about the movie and what really connects it to Scorsese is that it's about a spiritual seeker. I mean, that, this is so that connects to the Scorsese that we've seen in Last Temptation of Christ and Kundun and and um, Silence. You know, in, in many of other Scorsese's films, his Catholicism is such so important to his movies, and uh, I think he really gets at the contradictions of, of Harrison well, of, of, of a guy who is on this quest for truth and is in, in, in meaning, but at the same time is also, you know, kind of a womanizer and somebody who hoards money and, you know, is very much the guy who wrote Taxman. You know, this is like somebody who is full of interesting contradictions and also, you know, a great artist in his own right. I mean, to my, my favorite stretch of the movie is um, when they talk about the making of his triple album all things must pass which is an awesome record and just this explosion of creativity after his time in in the beatles i mean he just had all of these 
great songs sort of stored up and he got Phil Spector who is a talking hand in this film to produce and and it's just a big album and it's got you know my sweet lord on it and what's the what is what's the other big hit from that um what is life uh, as featured in the martin scorsese film goodfellas <laughs> there you go um so uh, george harrison living in the material world if you're a, a beatles fan or a, or a george harrison fan it gives you a complete picture and i think i think there's enough there to tie it uh, to Scorsese and the things that Scorsese is interested in. So I'd recommend it. Genevieve? Well, like you guys, I'm going to recommend a film that I was sort of inspired to remember while doing this pairing. And I'm going to take this opportunity to recommend a film that I was reminded of several times while watching Velvet Goldmine and a film I love a lot, which is uh, John Cameron Mitchell's Hedwig and the Angry Inch, the 2001 film version of the stage musical penned by Mitchell and Stephen Trask, uh, which opened off-Broadway the same year that Velvet Goldmine was crashing and burning in theaters. (laughs) (laughs) Starring uh, John Cameron Mitchell as the leader of the titular band, it also takes the loose form of a musical biopic about a fictional glam rocker, and it plays with similar ideas as Velvet Goldmine about crafting one's own identity within the context of performative art. Uh, But it feels a lot more personal and less mythic than Haynes's film, uh, centering on Hedwig's search for love and acceptance as a person who exists between genders and is constantly processing the trauma of that existence through music and performance. Uh, It also has some elements of magical realism and some form-busting moments that feel like they're kind of part of the same tradition as Velvet Goldmine. I'm thinking of the absolutely wonderful wig in a box sequence, which I'd suggest pulling up on YouTube if you haven't seen it before to get a taste of this film. But another reason I wanted to recommend the film in conjunction with this pairing is that so much of it is made up of live performances, uh, which Mitchell performed live on set, albeit over backing tracks and not live instrumentation. But it nonetheless, at many points, has an energy similar to that of a concert documentary. Uh, That, along with its origins as a stage show transmuted to a film format, links it in my mind a bit to Rolling Thunder Review as well. Uh, I will say it is is a significantly tighter film than either of the ones we've discussed this week, (laughs) clocking it it at a slim 92 minutes. Uh, But it feels suitably big for its subject matter and for its central performance, which is very, very good. Uh, If you haven't seen it before, I suggest rectifying that and soon. And if you have, hey, maybe this pairing will inspire you to give it a rewatch. It's available on the Criterion channel for subscribers and easily rentable on most streaming platforms. Hedwig and the Angry Inch. You guys like this film, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. It's out on uh, Blu-ray from Criterion as well. And they've done, as usual, done a nice job with the special features and everything on it. Yeah. Yeah, One thing I was thinking about, too, I mean, Hedwig is... You know, I was, it's so weird to me that they that they kind of were produced simultaneously because because the two movies it and Velvet Goldmine have so much in common. But one of the things that, that kind of struck me when you mentioned it was, you know, we were talking about how in Velvet Goldmine, uh, Brian Slade undergoes different phases of his career with different managers, and, and you could almost describe him in one phase as being a lot like Hedvig and then in the other phase being like Tommy Gnosis, the character played uh, by yeah, Mike, totally. Michael Pitt as being somebody who who is who is going to take this authentic thing and popularize it and become a huge huge star you know at at the expense of other people in his life of 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 your uh, Tony Collette types or your Joan Baez types um so so it all um it all kind of connects up really well and I, I i i saw hedvig's world premiere at the the only sundance film festival i ever went to and i, I don't even i don't think i appreciated it enough at the time i've seen it since over the years and, and wrote about it 
for New Cult Canon and other other places. And and uh, it was a movie of the week at the Dissolve. Is, yeah, it's it's just great. It's a great movie. It really is. Uh, music is is fun, and it has. I mean, it, it it's you know, it's a it's a musical. It's it's a stage musical. It's not the the music is much different than the music that was created for mm-hmm. Velvet Goldmine. Um, but the spirit is the spirit is there, and uh, it's catchy. So catchy numbers for sure. That's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. We're going to be taking a week off before our next set of episodes, which will drop July 30th and August 6th. Genevieve, what do we have coming up? Writer-director Riley Stearns has been quiet since his terrific, low-key 2014 feature debut, Faults, about a professional deprogrammer trying to pull a young woman out of a cult. But it's possible to look at that film and see the bones of his second feature, the new The Art of Self-Defense, which stars Jesse Eisenberg as a nebbishy, shy young man whose life changes when he's assaulted on the street. Attempting to get his dignity back, Eisenberg's character falls into his own form of cult by training with a grimly serious martial arts instructor with peculiar, specific ideas about masculinity. The screenplay takes a lot of odd, unpredictable turns, many of which are purely comedic. But it's an entirely straight-faced film about machismo and men who feel like they're at war with the infantilizing pressures of the world. Those themes, the blend of dark humor and serious business, and the idea of a cultish leader with an unaccountable sway over society's lost and wandering souls, all made us think of David Fincher's Fight Club. That film also addresses masculinity through two men, one who sees himself as weak and in need of improvement, and one who finds catharsis in strength and violence. We'll take up the comparison between Fight Club and the art of self-defense on the next episodes of The Next Picture Show. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Velvet Goldmine, Rolling Thunder Review, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve Kosky. I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Scott underscore Tobias. And uh, you can find my work in NPR, Variety, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, The Ringer, and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Keith? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at kphipps3000. I'm a freelance writer for hire. You can, fi- you can find my clips at keithphipps.com. Currently, you can find me in places like New York Times, Vulture, Oh, gosh. Polygon. The Verge. I had a, had a, a, a piece there for our own Tasha Robinson, who's absent this week, uh, about the audio drama adapted from Alien 3, which I think I've mentioned on the show before. So I'll be quiet about it now. Okay. <laughs> um, and, well, and, and, and Tasha Robinson, who's not with us, um, she you can find her on Twitter at, at Tasha Robinson, and she is the film and TV editor for The Verge. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also subscribe to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up, Helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Hey, the sound of a thunder that roars.
one person starve or heard many people laughing. Heard the song of a poet who died in the gutter. Heard the sound of a clown crying in the alley. And it's a high, and it's a high, and it's a high, well, it's a high, and it's a high, and it's a high.